The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Let me begin this topic of generosity with a story. One day a boy and a girl decided to make a trade with one another. And what they decided was that each one of them would choose 10 of their most treasured and valuable marbles in their collection. And then they would exchange it with each other on the appointed day. And the day before the exchange was to take place, the boy looked over his prized marbles and he found one that he just couldn't bring himself to give up. And so he exchanged that marble for a lesser one in his collection. And then he saw another one that was just too good to give up. And so once again, he exchanged it for one of lesser value. And on and on this went until he eventually ended up exchanging over half of his treasured marbles that he was originally going to give the girl. And on the following day, the boy and the girl met and they made the trade, each giving the other the bag of prized marbles that they had prepared. That night, the girl went to bed with a huge smile on her face, so happy about the new marbles that she had just gotten that day in that trade. In contrast, the boy couldn't sleep that night, tossing and turning all night because he couldn't get rid of this nagging thought. Did that girl give me her best marbles or was I cheated? Now I want to ask you out of this simple little story here, which child came out on top at the end of that day? I mean, from a purely material standpoint, you could argue that the girl was the sucker because she got cheated by the boy. But then you have to ask yourself, who was the one that slept well that night with a big smile on her face? I mean, maybe the boy ended up with a more valuable marble collection, but at what cost? As simple as this little story is, it illustrates well, I think, the choice that stands before every one of us about whether we will approach life from a mindset of abundance or one of scarcity. Now, through this Bible Project series, we've been tracing the major themes found in Scripture. And today, our focus is on this theme of generosity and the counter theme of scarcity. And so, in the first part of today's message, I want to explore this scarcity mindset that dominates almost all of human history. And then, in the second half of the message, we'll look at Jesus' invitation to embrace a life of generosity that flows out of a trust in God's goodness for us. 
As with all major biblical themes, this one begins at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 through 3. And, you know, doing this gospel, I mean, this Bible project series, one of the things that I've been struck with is every single significant theme and storyline in the Bible actually begins in those first few pages of the Bible. It's just incredible how everything somehow connects back to Genesis 1 through 3. And so the Bible begins with a picture of God creating a world of abundance filled with all of the resources that are needed for us to thrive. Genesis 1, 29-30, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So this is the repeated message of God saying, all of this I have given for you, for you to enjoy, to sustain life and thrive and flourish on this earth. This promise of God to his creation is wonderfully illustrated in song, in Psalm 104. In verses 14 to 16 of that psalm, it says, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In verses 21 to 24, The lions roar for their prey and Seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then in verse 27 to 28, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Now these verses paint a beautiful picture of abundance. Every creature looking to God for, the, for him to provide the things that are needed to sustain life. But then here's what happens in the story. Even in that setting of abundance in a garden paradise, Adam and Eve were drawn into a mindset of scarcity. Of scarcity. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so under the serpent's influence, Eve's view of God begins to change from one of a loving provider to someone who cannot be trusted to have her best interest in mind. You know, the mindset of abundance says, God has given this entire garden to me to be enjoyed as this paradise. But the mind of scarcity 
can only focus on what is being denied. All Eve can think about is this tree at the center of the garden that God has declared out of bounds to her. What if God is keeping me from something that is actually deeply desirable to us? Why doesn't he want us to possess this knowledge of good and evil? So the first major teaching point that I want to make is simply this. This battle between an abundance and scarcity mindset was central to the fall of humanity. Can God be trusted to take care of us or do we need to take matters into our own hands? The story of original sin reveals that this attitude of scarcity can take root even in the midst of abundance. That's the crazy thing, right? Even surrounded by abundance, we can take on a mindset of scarcity. No matter what we have in life, the spirit of scarcity will always focus on the one thing that we think we need, but we don't have. It is to see life as always a glass half empty rather than half full. And we see the same struggle between abundance and scarcity mindsets in the story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 to 9, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will, not, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? We're not given details about why Abel offered a better sacrifice that day than his brother Cain. But you know, Cain ought to have been focusing on his own relationship with God and what he needs to do to offer a more acceptable sacrifice. As God says to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But what eats away at Cain is the fact that his sacrifice was rejected while Abel's was accepted. It's the comparison that gnaws at him. And so Cain is filled with a jealous rage that boils over into murder, taking the life of his own brother. And the story of Cain and Abel shows us that the struggle between generosity and scarcity isn't limited to money. It affects every area of our life. Through the eyes of scarcity, life is a zero-sum game. It is the mindset that if you gain, I lose. When others recognize you, I feel neglected and unappreciated. Your 
success makes me feel like a failure. Your beauty makes me feel ugly. And I think all of us wish that we were above this kind of petty comparison game. But the truth is all of us are affected by this scarcity mentality far more than we're willing to admit. I'll be the first one to admit my own struggle with that. I mean, the truth is when somebody raves about a church in the Chicagoland area that everyone is flocking to and that is growing by leaps and bounds and saying that the teaching is awesome there, I mean, the truth is it does make me feel a little insecure and defensive as a pastor in the Chicagoland area. And when I hear an amazing sermon on a podcast, I wish I could just be blessed by the power of that teaching. But the truth is, there is a little jealous voice that also whispers, I wish I had preached that message. Let me just ask you, how do you feel as you scroll through your Facebook and your Instagram feeds and seeing all the amazing vacations and all the fun family moments that parents are having with their kids and all the achievements people are experiencing at work that they're boasting about? I suspect that the sentiment out of that is not one of joy or gratitude, but far more likely you are feeling envy and insecurity and discouragement about your own life. You see, living out of a place of scarcity, uh, it's just a horrible place to be in your life. And when we take that posture, that mindset of scarcity, then we're not only stingy with our money, but we're stingy with our time, our possessions, our help to others, even our words of encouragement and praise to people. You know, when I thought about that, it is totally illogical to be stingy with our compliments to others, isn't it? Because we have an unlimited bank account of compliments that we can give to people. We can shower praise and compliments to people endlessly, and that well never runs out. So then the question is, why are we so reluctant to praise other people? Why are we so hesitant to compliment someone? I think it's because of this distorted logic of a scarcity mentality that lifting you up diminishes me, makes me feel less than. You know, the scarcity mindset is about putting ourselves first at the expense of others. After all, if we don't do it, who is going to lack after our needs? You know, a few generations after Cain and Abel, this guy Lamech shows up. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 to 24, he boasts to his wives. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You see, the mentality of Lamech is if this is a kill or be killed world, then I am the one that's going to do the killing. You see, God does not factor into the equation at all. Basically, Lamech is saying, no one else is going to look after my needs, so I'm going to be sure to take care of myself first. And if anyone steps on me, they'll have to pay for it. 
And as history unfolds, this scarcity mindset isn't just limited to fallen individuals, but it infects entire societies. In fact, the entire world becomes colored by the scarcity mindset. You know, the city and the Tower of Babel represent this spirit of scarcity at a societal level. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Here's the thing. The world had undeniably become a hostile and dangerous place in a fallen and sinful state. But rather than turning to God, the people of Babel decided the way we're going to solve this is by uniting and becoming powerful and building a city with walls that cannot be breached and a tower that reaches to the heavens and we will make a name for ourselves. We will become great at the expense of other people. And so the age of empires has begun. Wealth, power, Security gained through war and domination and enslavement. One nation subjugating another out of this scarcity mentality. The rich taking advantage of the poor. The strong abusing the weak. And we live in a world in which one group exploits and abuses another in the hopes of securing their own future, their own happiness. This is life on earth, isn't it? For me to win, you have to lose. And it is into this broken world, ruled by a scarcity mentality, that God demonstrated his greatest act of generosity imaginable. John chapter 3, verse 16, a verse we all know so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In this act of giving his son, God invites us to see a word, the world through a totally different perspective, through the lens of abundance that is rooted in his generosity and his love for us. That is Paul's argument in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 8, verse 31 to 32, it says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, the message of the cross is that we live not in a world of scarcity, but one of abundance, because God in his love and mercy is generous toward us. That's what the cross teaches us, that we aren't alone in our struggles, that God is with us, and that changes everything. By giving us his son to die on the cross, God demonstrated the depth to which he would go to care for our needs. And Jesus would echo that same message to his followers. In Luke chapter 12, verse 22 to 34, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore go tell you, I, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. 
For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life since you cannot do this very little thing? Why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan would run, a world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Rather than seeing a godless world filled with scarcity, Jesus invites us to see a world of abundance because we have a loving God who cares for our needs. You know, in verse 25 to 26, Jesus says, you, who, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? In other words, I think what Jesus is saying is, when you realize how little control you have, of even the smallest things in your life, let that instruct you about surrendering your greatest worries to your Father in heaven who cares about you. You know, one of the things that I was struck by when we were living as missionaries in Kenya was the strength and the resilience of the faith displayed by many of the Kenyan Christians that we knew there, even in the face of some really amazing and difficult challenges and disappointments in life. And I suspect that it had something to do with the fact that many of them on a daily basis had to trust God for even the smallest things in their life because of their lack of resources, their lack of wealth. The problem in America, though, is that unlike so many other parts of the world, our wealth gives us the luxury of not having to worry about the smaller problems in life. Because the truth is we can buy ourselves out of those problems. And that ends up giving us the illusion of control in our life. And here's the thing, is as a result of that, I think the truth is our faith is often way more fragile when we're faced with the really big challenges of life that we have no power to control. What I'm saying is this. In other words, our money and our resources in America, they end up spiritually crippling us in our own growth of faith. And it's because when we have so much power available through our wealth and when we can basically control our outcomes through that wealth, we don't really learn to exercise that muscle of faith and really learn to trust in God. 
rather than trusting in our own power, though. Jesus invites us to put our trust in God and believe that he will take care of our needs. As Jesus points out in this passage, though, the ultimate goal isn't just so you can have a peaceful night of sleep. It is so that out of this mindset of abundance, we can demonstrate a generosity toward others in our life. That's why he says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. In other words, in a world consumed by the fear of scarcity, we are called to display God's love and care for his creation through our own generosity to them. I think we as the church need to return to one of this being one of the most foundational expressions of our witness in the world, which is to show the generosity of God for his creation through the way that we as the church care for the needy among us. And I think in many ways the church has lost this witness. I don't think in America Christians are exactly known for this, are we? To be the most generous the most sacrificially giving in society. And let me say this. The only way that we can live in that ministry of generosity is if we truly believe that our own needs will be met by the God who loves us and cares for us. Let me clarify this. When I say that God will take care of us, I am not giving you a blanket promise or guarantee that he is going to give you whatever you want or that he is even going to shield you from suffering and difficulties. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God himself, experienced a life of poverty and struggle and suffering. We need, in other words, to see the eternal perspective of these promises When we truly understand the gospel, in other words, it ought to totally reorder our value system and redefine what it means to be rich in the eyes of God. That's why Jesus says at the end of this passage in verses 33 to 34, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. The things that the world chases after are not the things that God values, in other words. As I kind of start wrapping up this message, um, I want to tell you about this interesting parable in Luke chapter 16. It's a really confusing one. And I preached on it back in the day when we were going through that Gospel of Luke series. But let me just... I would love to read the whole passage, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to paraphrase it for you and then unpack it for you a little bit. The story that Jesus tells begins with this estate manager who has been caught um, squandering the resources of his master, this very wealthy landowner. And so he is fired on the spot. And he is commanded to turn in all of the accounting ledgers immediately and then basically get out of the estate. But that's not what this manager does. Instead, he calls all of his master's debtors, all of the wealthy landowner's debtors, and tells them to come in. 
And then he negotiates every one of their debts, reducing them all. You owe 5000 Let's make it 2000 You owe my master $25,000. let us just call it an even 10000 and be done with it. And he does this so that he could leverage those relationships later, calling in favors to those debtors once he's out on the street and jobless. And the twist of the story is this. When the landowner discovers what his manager has done, he doesn't throw him in jail. He actually gives him kind of an attaboy and says, really clever guy, really smart. And he actually commends him for his shrewdness. And so you can understand why this story confuses so many Christians. Because it basically sounds like Jesus is condoning unethical behavior here. But that's not the point of this parable. Because in Luke 16, verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. See? What Jesus wants us to imitate in this dishonest manager is his shrewdness, his shrewdness. In other words, what Jesus is telling us is this. This manager had the smarts to recognize that the one valuable resource that he had, which is possessing his master's accounting ledgers, was about to be taken away from him. And so while he still had the chance, he had the intelligence to leverage that one resource and to give favors to his boss's debtors, which would pay dividends later when he was thrown out on the street. And I think what Jesus is wanting us to understand is that we are in that exact same situation as that manager. We have this brief window of time when we are entrusted with God's resources. But the worry that Jesus says is that you are not going to be as shrewd as this guy, this manager, to understand that situation and to leverage that resource for your own future. Let me spell it out to you more plainly. The worry is that we are going to go to our grave with a pile of money that will one day be utterly useless, fooled into thinking that that was the point of life, rather than investing it in the things that will have eternal value. And we will have missed that window of opportunity to leverage what we've been given for something eternal. That's why Jesus closes with these words in Luke 16, verse 10 to 13. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and money. You know, in the book Give and Take, Adam Grant states that everyone in the workforce can basically be divided into three different categories. And he calls them the givers, the takers, and the matchers. And the most common of these three types in the workplace is what we call the matchers. For matchers, everything is about fairness. And so, as a result, everything they do is tit for tat. You see, they will help you in a moment of need. But here's the thing for a matcher. If you do not reciprocate, don't ever expect their help again in a future time. They'll cut you off. By far, the most people in the workforce are matchers. Okay? Takers as you might guess, like to get more than they give. They are always maneuvering to make sure that in their relationships, it always tilts in their favor. And they always put their interests, their own interests, ahead of others' needs. For takers, life is a zero-sum game. In order for someone to win, someone has to lose, and it isn't going to be them. Takers are cautious and they're self-protective. They feel the need to constantly promote themselves, making sure that they get credit for everything they do in the workplace. Takers often disguise themselves, and here's the interesting thing. Takers will often disguise themselves as givers or matchers. But over time, as you get to know them, it becomes clear that they're only in that relationship because what they think they can get out of it. So then the last category, givers. Givers, on the other hand, often don't think about the personal cost of helping others. And they will often uh, offer their time and their energy, their knowledge, their expertise, even their connections and relationships pretty indiscriminately, pretty liberally. They will often help people, in fact, at a significant personal cost to themselves. For example, in a workplace situation, you may find an employee who goes out of their way to help a coworker with their project. And as a result of that, they miss their own deadline because they were helping this guy so much. Now, not surprisingly, Grant discovered that in most companies, the bottom of the food chain is populated by givers, okay? It's, it's the sad reality. It's the sad truth. Is the bottom of most companies are populated by givers. Uh, Grant writes in Give and Take, research demonstrates that givers sink to the bottom of the success ladder. Across a wide range of important occupations, givers are at a disadvantage. They make others better off but sacrifice their own success in the process. Across occupations, it appears that givers are just too caring, too trusting, and too willing to sacrifice their own interests for the benefit of others. There's even evidence that compared with takers, on average, givers earn 14% less money, have twice the risk of becoming victims of crimes, and are judged as 22% less powerful and dominant. 
And doesn't it sure sound like I am negating everything I've taught you in the sermon by closing with this illustration? I don't think any of Grant's findings so far surprise any of us. But the real surprise, the real discovery that Grant found was this. The people at the top, the, I'm talking the very top, CEO, CFO, COO, the top of the success ladder was also where they found the givers, the most generous people in the company. Among all three of these styles, the givers were the most likely to reach the highest levels in any field that they worked in, precisely because they were so generous to others without any ulterior motives or selfish hidden agenda. And Grant writes this about this observation. When takers win, there's usually someone else who loses. Research shows that people tend to envy successful takers and look for ways to knock them down a notch. In contrast, when givers win, people are rooting for them and supporting them rather than gunning for them. Givers succeed in a way that creates a ripple effect, enhancing the success of people around them. You'll see that the difference lies in how giver success creates value instead of just claiming it. Now, obviously, this is not an ironclad rule. There could be toxic work cultures in which givers are punished more than rewarded. But, you know, I see a lot of spiritual parallels in Grant's discoveries in this book about the workplace. From a worldly point of view, givers do seem like suckers and losers. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? Though he was rich, as the Bible says, for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we could become rich. You know, the question that we need to ask ourselves as Christians is, are we like those takers who are disguising ourselves as givers, only willing to help others if there's something in it for us? Or are we willing to genuinely follow in the footsteps of Jesus and help others to succeed, even if it costs us our own hopes and ambitions? Are we really willing to do that? But then I also want to point out, I think the givers at the top also illustrate the spiritual reality that even though our instincts tell us that, giving this, that, that adopting this kind of giving strategy is a sure invitation to the bottom, that as Jesus himself said, it's paradoxically the way to the top in his kingdom. The last shall be first. The least shall be the greatest. In his kingdom. You know, I think it's so inspiring when I was reading this book to think about this that at the very top of a company, finding a CEO who is just such an unpretentious, uncalculating giver, and the blessing that gives to that company, a flourishing under that kind of a leadership. And just thinking about the impact that a single giver in that status and that authority can have to the entire organization, lifting up the lives of everyone in that company. 
And I think in the same way, that is our identity in Christ. We give to others generously out of the faith that God has richly blessed us with an abundance of his generosity and out of that God can magnify our seemingly insignificant generous acts of kindness to others in ways that we could never possibly imagine for him to accomplish his kingdom mission through us. I think that is the invitation of faith that stands before us this day is that God wants to use each one of us as conduits of his generosity to this world. And we have no idea what even the smallest act of kindness to someone could do in this world filled with the scarcity mentality. Let me just close with this and then we'll go to communion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to 8. Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This is the glorious picture of life in the kingdom. Is God abundantly pouring into you so that out of the riches of that blessing, you can pour selflessly into the lives of those around you, of your time, your resources, your knowledge, your relationships, a kind word, a compliment, a word of encouragement, to someone in need of it. And so that's what I want to ask you as we wrap up today. Do you operate more out of a mentality of scarcity? Or has God touched your life and opened your eyes to see his generosity toward you so that you flow in life out of a place of abundance? I have all that I need in Christ. And out of the riches of what I have received from him, I give to you. I just give to you and keep giving. I want to invite you to come to the Lord's table at this time. And what an awesome way for us to practice the reality of this truth, but by coming to this table. And so we have some people coming around and giving to you the elements for the communion at this time. I think the message of the communion table is a message of God's abundance for us. He is not asking us to give to anybody anything that he hasn't first given to us. So when we feel the scarcity, when we feel those moments of need and struggle in our life, I think he invites us to come to this table and be reminded of everything that we have because of Christ. And to say, whatever challenges I'm facing, whatever fears that are gripping me, whatever ways in which the brokenness of this world seems too much for me, when I come to this table, I am reminded that if God would give his only son, what would he not give in addition to that? 
What would he withhold to me if he would not withhold his only son? On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around an upper room. And he transformed the meaning of that Passover meal when he gave to them the bread and broke it and said, this represents my body broken for you. And then he passed around that cup of wine and had his disciples drink from that common cup and said, this wine represents the blood of, my new, of the new covenant made with you. So whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Let me invite you right now to go ahead and take first from the, 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 cup, the, the, the bread and then take from the cup. And then I'll close us in a word of prayer. We confess that the truth is in our lack of faith. We often get sucked into this mindset of scarcity that so poisons all of your creation, which causes us to be so stingy in our giving to others, seeing life as a zero-sum game, and feeling this constant sense of insecurity and resentment and disappointment in our hearts. But I pray through the work of your Holy Spirit that awakens the truth of your word in our hearts, that even as we go into this new week that lays before us, we would step out in faith and know by that faith that you are such a good God who gives us abundantly. And in the knowledge of that abundance, would you grow in each one of our hearts a heart of generosity toward the people around us, particularly those who are in greatest need? We could give because you are the one who first gives to us. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.